Hello everybody, welcome to Lessons from the Top, a podcast that aims to inspire and educate the next generation through inspiring stories from successful people in entrepreneurship, finance, and politics. Today we are joined by Carl Moore, an esteemed educator at McGill and Oxford who is renowned on a global scale, recognized as one of the greatest business thinkers in the world and among the top four business professors in Canada by the Globe and Mail. Mr. Moore has taught MBA and executive programs at some of the most prestigious educational institutions worldwide. Moreover, he has conducted interviews with top-level executives from around the world as part of his show, CEO Series. Amazing. Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, welcome uh, here. So, uh, amazing. So, let's get things rolling here. So, well, first off, how are you doing today? Well, good. Uh, It's Friday. I was in... uh... Newfoundland this week, and then uh, the week before I was in Ghana and the Cote d'Ivoire for 12 days with 30 McGill undergrads and about 20 uh, McGill alumni. So great fun to be over in West Africa and meet a lot of interesting people. Amazing. Great. Yeah. So, um, so tell us a little bit more about yourself. Um, what projects are you working on right now? What you know? What keep what keeps you occupied uh, as of late? Well, there's two things. I have a book called Generation Y coming out in about two weeks from the McGill Queens University Press. And that's about uh, your generation, okay. uh, Generation Zs and younger millennials. So in that book, I'm arguing in one sentence this, that people over 45 the degree were taught a modern worldview. People under 35 the degree were taught a postmodern worldview, therefore must be managed differently and have five short chapters about how to manage postmodern. So that's one book. And I'm writing a book for Stanford University Press, uh, hopefully be out next year, about uh, introverts, ambiverts, and extroverts as leaders. So that's two of the books I'm working on right now and got a couple other things I'm thinking about beyond that, but not uh, not to the same level as those two. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. Um, what topics do you touch on, uh, for example, the first book for uh, McGill? Well, it's about um, talking about a, a couple of interesting topics. One would be reverse mentoring. Okay. So the idea is that, um, you know, I say to my students, that 30% of the time you're teaching me. So I have eight McGill students work for me part-time. They're 20, 21, like one's 19. And uh, they're teaching me about technology. They're teaching me about how to think about today's people, um, which is great. But I also point out 70% of the time I'm mentoring them. But I, I, when I talk to uh, older crowds of executives, I say I'm older than most of you, and they nod, and I say, my workforce is younger than yours unless you run a McDonald's. And so I'm getting people that probably worked at a country club or a McDonald's or something before me, but it's their first experience with, you know, more of a manager and a more of a professional relationship. So I'm reverse. They teach me about what's happening in the world, where the world's going in a way that I have a couple of mentors in their 80s, and uh, it would not occur to them to ask me to mentor them. It's one-way relationship from them to me. And that's kind of more traditional view mentoring. Another interesting thought from the book is I wrote an article for the Globe Mail about three years ago, which is the second most read article online for the year. And it was entitled, Never Apologize, Never Explain Bad Ideas for Millennials. And so when I was young, there was an idea that the never explain, never apologize is kind of what a, a real leader did. But what I say today is that I apologize easily because I may be not quite woke enough at times. And the other thing is I explain everything. And why I explain things is because, you know, uh, Noah, Charles, or George, you might say, 
actually that's interesting, but I think things have changed. So by explaining things, it allows you to point out where I've fallen short, where my ideas are no longer uh, au fait with the world, but the dated. And then we can change our approach because you've had a chance to have input to the ideas. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the second, I think, a reasonably big idea out there, just explain things because younger people, more junior people in the organization will have a chance to point out where your thinking is flawed and how you can have a better, more effective strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, also, um, you know, it, it's the fact that, uh, you know, more traditional views, you see, uh, like, older people, older, more experienced people, they're, they're mentoring the young and they're showing these things. But I feel like in our modern generation, like, a lot of things have changed. So it's like you said, 30% of the time they're teaching you. So maybe you're, like, learning about uh, modern changes in technology and, like, stuff that's happening today. So I think it's, you know, it, it creates a parallel. So, yeah, it's an interesting fact. Uh, watch but, I mean, technology is a no-brainer. Like, you know, I just took a bunch of students to Africa and in previous years, you use Facebook. Mm-hmm. So this year I said, Facebook's kind of getting a little bit old. And they said that WhatsApp is what you should use. And I fell in love with WhatsApp because they would ask questions instead of me answering it, they would answer each other. And once in a while I'd step in and say, look at this is the McGill regulation. We've got to follow it. You have to have health insurance. And everybody goes, okay, fine. Yeah, it makes sense. But it's something where it made my life easier and it's also they would say who who wants to go out dancing uh let's get an uber and they would all kind of sort out who wants to go where it was just a great application that i fell in love with but i didn't really know it that well until this trip to africa where the students taught me about it so technology is a, a you know just an absolute given but it's more fundamental it's about how do you treat people how do you what's your view of hierarchy and truth and knowledge so those things were just the younger people rightly have a different view of it, and I need to catch up with today's view and not live in the past. So the danger you get older is that you're kind of living um, something from 20, 30 years ago, and it's no longer relevant. And keeping and not becoming yesterday's person is something that, as you get older, you have to wrestle with. Well, you guys don't have to worry about that. You're today's person. Though in 20 years, uh, I wonder about you guys. Mm-hmm. So, so you think the path to succeeding in overall business is, has changed over the years, for example, over today compared to uh, 50, 60 years ago? Oh, absolutely. I interviewed a guy, uh, most senior general in the world, my, General Martin Dempsey, was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the U.S. So when Obama went to war, he was the guy standing behind him in the military uniform. So I talked with him at Duke, and one of the things he said when I interviewed him, one of the most interesting things was, generals fight the battles of their youth so he was a uh, pup lieutenant out of west point had a tank during the cold war in germany he was taught about leadership by men and women that were learned about leadership as young men and women in vietnam where small men in black pajamas jumped out of the jungle shot you and disappeared in the tunnels is not the way that war had been done in world war ii and he learned about war and leadership in the cold war and when he came a general in desert storm the lessons he'd learned from the people from Vietnam, the lessons he personally learned during the Cold War were not entirely, but largely irrelevant for Desert Storm, the strategies and how you lead. So the, the point is, he said, generals fight the battles of their youth, and a lot of those relevant lessons are no longer relevant, so you need to change. So he had to listen to lieutenants and captains and younger people who are more of today's world. But that's one reason I travel with students and they work for me is so that I can keep up with today's world. Now, on the other hand, uh, I went to a, a new book launch by Henry Mintzberg, 83-year-old. 
who's one of my mentors. And, you know, I said to him at the end, I was interviewing him, I said, Henry, don't retire. And he pointed out that his granddaughters were there, that they were the future, young people of the future. And he said that a number of times, and that's a great takeaway from him. But on the other hand, there's still a wisdom to the older people. So it's a combination of older and younger together will make the world unfold as it should and better than my generation who was more focused on what we thought and didn't listen enough to older to other people, including younger and older. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nowadays, um, young people can learn from uh, old people as much as old people can learn from young people. So yeah, completely. yeah it's a two way street. Mm-hmm. You don't call us the old people, you call us older. Older. Okay. No one is old. Your grandmother who's 96 is not old. She's older and has more life experience. But don't call anybody old. Okay, older. Yes. That's where you are. <laughs> so um, you have taught in many universities around the world. And, you know, what are the most important skills and qualities for success in today's job market? Because it has changed and you've seen it change over the time. And what is, you know, the most important skills to have? Well, something where at top universities, I mean, you get three things from it. If you go to a, you know, a, for a bachelor's or master's degree, one is a, a brand. So if you go to a top university, you're, you're an Oxford person or you're a McGill person, this brands you as a bright young person. And it's by just going there, you get it. Secondly, you get a network. And this is really important these days is that you develop a network of not only, I mean, you have a, you'll develop a network where you invite them to your wedding. Like, you know, a couple of friends from your college will come in to your wedding and that's great. Um, and when you have a kid, you'll let them know and they're really excited. But then that's being, the, you know, close friends are friends. I suspect you guys, because you're doing this work together, are close friends and will be for life. But then it's a set of other people you learn from. You get to know a university and you keep in touch with them because they'll be useful to you. So they're not close friends, but they're friends in a lighter sense, but they're a great network. And then there's people that are not friends, but if you're ever in Los Angeles, you'll let them know and you'll have dinner together. And if they're ever in Montreal, they'll let you know and have dinner and you'll help them if you can. So I think that network is a very useful thing. And LinkedIn is unbelievable. Where when I graduated, uh, you would write to people's parents because they probably lived in the same address because they're older and say, hey, what's Charles up to? You know, and they would know because it's their son. But today on LinkedIn, when I went to Africa, there was a couple of people I taught that showed up in uh, McGill alumni events because I knew where they were. Because on LinkedIn, and you go on LinkedIn, you go McGill, and you go, oh, I, I taught them, I remember her. So it's something where that networking is much more accessible, and it's a great thing you get from, from college or university. And the third thing is you learn something from the professors, but not to uh, diminish what I do, is that in 10 years, I'll change my mind to a certain degree. So knowledge goes on. So the knowledge is great, but I think the network and the brand are more valuable in terms of lasting throughout your life. But the knowledge will change over time. But, you know, at a, at a university or college, you learn how to learn, you learn how to keep in uh, with what's going on and what sources are good ones to go to. Those are valuable life skills that, you know, like I tell my students, I, I get the economist, the best media outlets in the world, the Economist and the FT, because the British used to own most of the world, so they have a bigger worldview, where the New York Times, the Washington Post are great, and Wall Street Journal, but they're a bit too American in their viewpoint, but very good reporters, very valuable. So I read the FT on my phone, I have the Financial Times, the Economist, the New York Times, Washington Post, 
Wall Street Journal, and the Globe and Mail. So it's something where you should learn what are the great sources of information. TikTok's fine, Twitter's fine, but I think there's some sources where they're very good journalists that look at stories and the Wall Street Journal's a bit more right-wing, um, New York Times a bit more left-wing, but they're good journalists that you can learn from. So I think understanding is what are good sources of knowledge is another thing you get in university that lasts a lifetime. Yeah, and like you said, I feel like, you know, with social media and stuff nowadays, it's really easy to get informed about everything in the world. So it's really just important to get, you know, more knowledge about what's happening around you. And yeah, um, yeah so I completely agree on, you know, and even though the connection and stuff with people, I feel like nowadays it's really good to have connections. And uh, yeah, I, you know, I wanted to ask you a question, you know, what are, because you've talked, you know, with uh, many business uh, leaders and entrepreneurs and stuff. And what are the most common trait and habit of successful people that can, you know, can, you know, me, for example, I can use those trait or qualities that they have to make me a better person. What's interesting one is that uh, a guy named Michael Sabi, who ran a big part of the government and ran Bell, ran uh, the K-State Bowl, now is back to the Minister of Finance. He'd come to my CEO class and at some point he'd say, never be the smartest person in the room. So I, when I, you know, when it's time to time, I walked in the elevator, come back, and I said to my students, I think the smartest person just left the room, and they'd all laugh and applaud. They agreed this guy had a huge brain, but it's that attitude of other people know more than I do, and I can learn from them. And if you're a CEO, one level, even though you're the CFO, the chief financial officer before, she does that day in and day out. She actually knows more than you do after a few months. So when you're a CEO, everybody knows more about their area than you do because they're at it full time. So I think a degree of humility and respect for other people's contribution and what they can bring is a really important thing that you, you take out into the business world. A second point is I think we're more open to risk, and that's entrepreneurs. But even in big organizations, the world, when I say to other people, older people, I was teaching at Memorial University earlier this week, the world's gone nuts. And older people go, yeah, the world's nuts. And what we call that is a turbulent environment. So if you have a turbulent world outside your organization, you need to adjust it more frequently to align with that turbulent environment. So the ability to, to pivot, to change, to take on board some risks, to be in alignment with the new world is a very important one for a leader. So you're not stuck in doing things the way we've always done it, but you're going to keep going and even that, you'll change it again in a year or two. So that ability to transform and change organizations to be in alignment with where you need to be is a critical skill set for a leader these days so that you are willing to go in a new direction. And part of it is there's two big uh, schools of strategy. One is Minsburg Emergent School at McGill, and there's uh, Michael Porter at Harvard. You know, if you study business at some point, you'll learn you know, uh, the five forces of Michael Porter and the value chain models and all this. Michael argues that strategy is top down. And it comes from the CEO and the C-suite and it's this great mind. You know, McKinsey and BCG and Bain come in and help them and they're fine people. And occasionally, like I, I interviewed a guy named Ben Smith who runs uh, Air France KLF, one of the biggest airlines in the world. Used to work at Air Canada. And... When he buys a new fleet, it's his decision. He gets advice, but it's billions of dollars. So it's top down. 
But a lot of strategy is more bottom up where frontline troops who are actually talking to customers and suppliers says the world's changing and they develop a new strategy and the job of senior management is not to have that strategy, but spot good ones as they occur in the front line and spread them around the organization. So it's more of a world of emergent strategy. And so the senior executive has got to look out for good things happening in their organization and learn where to see ideas and when to scale them and make them across the organization. So those are some things that strike me from talking to a bunch of CEOs. I do, I do probably 100 CEO interviews a year because of my radio show and I have a CEO class. And we did uh, some uh, CEO interviews over in West Africa uh, in the last couple of weeks and interviewed the head of the K-State Po, which is the big investment fund here in Quebec, um, yesterday. And then the head of the Canadian Red Cross today. So, you know, you're out there talking to these people and you see some of those common themes, which, you know, we've just uh, chatted to, uh, to you about a couple of minutes just now. So, yeah, um, yeah, sorry, I kind of, my internet uh, bugged a little bit. But, yeah, like you said, and I had a question about, you know, the your CEO program and stuff. Is it open to everyone or only, like, big CEOs or can anybody listen to it? Well, anybody can listen to it. I mean, it's on uh, across Bell Media radio stations across Canada Saturday and Sunday, but it becomes a podcast Monday. And it's something where, you know, anybody can learn from it. You know, like one of the things I uh, may ask them to advice for young people like yourselves. You know, what advice do they have, in my case, for my undergraduates, if they're in class? Um, and it's something where it's available to anyone to think about. And uh, I might ask them if they're introverted or extroverted. So there's stuff that I think, regardless of age, you can learn from and pick up some ideas from what they're talking about. And again, there's some of the better leaders in Canada and, you know, um, other parts of the world when I travel as well. So it's something where you're ex in our better moments exposing to thinking of some of our more interesting leaders. Yeah. So, um, and if, you know, like you said, um, it, it's a podcast on Monday and is it, you know, like, a there's probably a big reach on that. And, um, yeah, I really find interesting that, you know, you're trying to help young people too, to get involved and yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure. So, well, um, I, mean, I teach at university, so I'm surrounded by young people. So it's great fun. So if you want, if anybody wants to listen, it's Carl, K-A-R-L, more, and the CEO series, just Google that. My name, advantage of being an unusual name, and uh, you guys have somewhat unusual names as well, is that there's fewer of you in the world. You know, if you're John Smith, there's a lot of John Smiths in the world, or Pierre, you know, uh, you know, took a French name, but it's something where just Google Carl with a K, Moore, M-W-O-R-E, and CEO series, and it'll come up. Good. Um, yeah, amazing. Uh, I wanted to touch on a little bit on what you said earlier. Um, you know, I completely agree with what you said. Um, I, I think that ignorance uh, in business backfires on everyone eventually. And I think being able to, uh, like I said, when you're a CEO or when you are uh, at a higher position in an organization, you have to be able to realize and have humility that there are people uh, that are more knowledgeable and experienced in certain things. So you have to be able in that sense to not be arrogant and to really realize, okay, they could bring something to the table and not actually just think that because you're in a higher position you should make all the decisions so yeah i completely agree on that um i wanted to um talk a little bit about a research project that you did with mckinsey where you talked about fathers who stay home with newborns um can you tell us more about this research and you know what you learned 
No, it's a lot of fun. I did it a couple of years ago, and so it was during the pandemic, and um, we wanted to, to talk to fathers, and uh, the, the funny was the, the first father uh, at the end of the interview, I asked him, um, you know, how much of the housework do you do? And he said something, I heard a woman laugh. It was clearly his wife, and she came and put her arms around him and said, hey, look, we'll make out tonight, but you don't do the dishes every night. Like, you know, she was just calling him out. And so I interviewed all the women as well. So um, it was during the pandemic, so both mom and dad were home. And when you ask a father about being a father, his partner just, it's irresistible to listen. Like, you know, you just, you got to listen because it's just too entertaining not to. So I, I got to talk to both men and women and mums and dads. And we think that it'll be a better relationship with the kids. But again, we have to watch them grow up and it'll take some years. But definitely it was a better relationship between mom and dad because it was a shared responsibility where the woman, you know, is pregnant, gives birth and breastfeed. So that's only something she can do. But other than that, you know, changing diapers, feeding the baby and all that sort of thing are, are things that after the woman stops breastfeeding, a man can do equally. And so there was much more of a sense of a shared responsibility. And it meant that the father was more engaged younger in the life of the child, which meant that they would, uh, we think, and the literature suggests that be better fathers for the lifetime of the child. So it was something where we see it in uh, Iceland and some of the Nordic countries, they have longer paternity leave. But it's something we came away saying, look, at, um, we should encourage men to, to spend more time in paternity leave and companies should provide for it and countries and provinces and states and all. Um, and it's a great outcome that works for both the relationship as well as the parenting. So that was kind of the, some of the key things we came away from the research. Mm -hmm. You think that uh, that type of relationship where the father is more at home and is taking on, you know, responsibilities with the mother, you think, um, it's like you said, like, if you compare that to, you know, a sort of more traditional way of, uh, like, the family nucleus where the dad is usually out, he's always working, he's always busy, and then the mom is at home with the kids. So you think, uh, well, from the research that you've done, you, you see a better parallel with the kids and uh, the overall, like you said, the relationship with the mom and the dad. It's better when... Um, it's like you said, shared responsibility and uh, they're more involved in the parenting. So, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. You think of most of human history, um, it's only in the last 150 years that dad would go away. But for most of human history, it'd be on a farm. Mm -hmm. And so dad might go put the fence up upside, outside because he's stronger and bigger. But, you know, dad was very much involved with the kids because he was around all the time. So he didn't get in the car and drive away. So much of human history, it was a shared responsibility. Um, that might be a little bit different because of physical strength or whatever, but by and large, it's only in the sense of industrial revolution that dad would go away. So I think what we're doing is recapturing most of what families have done for millennia. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that being financially independent helps you have a better relationship with your kids? Because let's say, because there's a difference between people that are really busy, but they have money, people that have time, but they have money. So I think um, someone like you, I assume you're a really busy person, but um, like, for example, someone that has money, but they also have time, you think that that allows you to have a better relationship with your kids because you can uh, provide in a better way and you can also actually have time to spend with your kids as opposed to always working to pay the bills and to pay the car loan. Uh, well, you know, something where, you know, families that are very poor and it's, you know, feeding the kids, mm -hmm. you may have to work a lot, but it's something where at a certain point, um, we probably worry 
about making too much money and and some people get wound up about they measure themselves by how much money they make and how much they get promoted and things like that that they neglect their families and so that's the danger i think in us and canada you know putting very poor families aside that for many people it's saying look at why do you need a house in upper westmount or you know british properties in vancouver it's all right you can do with less because then you have more time to spend with your family but you're not not feeding them so there's kind of the two extremes but putting away the poverty side i think for you know most of us we we have to rethink how much we work at times particularly when the kids are small maybe we get measure ourselves too much by our success in terms of work and not by other measures yeah i agree i feel like um as much as you want to be successful in your ambition stuff like it's it's important to well not to have a limit but to know how to like divide your time and to spend time with your family and to actually be involved in your kids' lives and to, you know, be there at uh, soccer games and stuff like that and not yeah. always be uh, at work, work, work. And you're not involved in your kids' life, even though you are technically providing a, you know, a good house, good school, you know, they're, 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 they're eating well and all that. I feel like that's just as important as being a good father and being there for your kids. So yeah, I completely yeah. agree. I wanted to um, speak on, you know, you, you did research focusing on, like you mentioned earlier at the beginning of the podcast, uh, introvert, ambivert, and extrovert leaders. Um, you know, how can young people that are in those different groups identify themselves and leverage their own strengths and weaknesses to become successful leaders? It's something where uh, the central idea behind introversion and extroversion, that the, kind of the continuum is your response to stimulation. Mm-hmm. Introverts love people, love being with people, but if they have too much stimulation, they tilt over and have got to take introvert breaks where they recharge. Where an extrovert, like introvert breaks would include things like, um, you know, reading a book, going for a walk by yourself, walking the dog. And at parties sometimes, introverts might go and hide in the bathroom, which I say don't do, but someone's got to actually use the bathroom. So like, you know, you can do is take your phone, put it to your ear and just go, uh-huh, uh-huh. Once in a while, people will leave you alone. So it's interesting, there's introvert breaks. Now, on the other hand, I read about this and there was nothing in the literature but extrovert breaks. And I realized as an extrovert, extreme extrovert, now it's a bell curve, I'm on one end of the bell curve, you know, extreme extrovert. I realized that after sitting in my office for a couple hours writing about introverts, ironically, I can't take it anymore. Do you hear the pain in my voice? Yes. Like I, I go down one uh, floor at, at the business school at McGill and there's an endless supply of undergraduates I'm teaching. So I go talk to them and restore my energy. And they'll tease me about taking expert breaks. But when I go uh, and my wife and kids aren't with me and I'm traveling like I was in Newfoundland recently, um, what I do is I'll often eat at the bar in the restaurant and talk to total strangers because I get energy from it. I enjoy it. You know, and, and you know, when I go, like if I'm in, you know, outside Canada, I'll go up or even in Newfoundland, I go, hi, I'm Carl. I'm from Montreal. Uh, and sadly, my wife and kids aren't here, so I thought I'd meet some real Newfoundlanders or New Yorkers. And everybody relaxes because, you know, it just you, you mention your wife and kids, therefore you're not trying to pick anybody up. And you mention you're from out of town, and so they're, you know, happy to talk to someone from Montreal, whether it be New York or Newfoundland or L.A. So it's something where I recharge by talking to people. Mm-hmm. And so that I take extrovert breaks to recharge. So it's about how much stimulation do you like? I like a lot, introverts like less. So it's a matter of kind of the hard wiring. And there was some research done at Harvard some years ago where they got four month old babies. 
where they looked at their response to stimulation and followed them for decades. And it was a fairly good indicator at four months old if you'd be more extroverted or introverted later in life. So it seems to be somewhat hardwired. Mm -hmm. So don't feel bad about it. It's the way nature made you. So relax and enjoy it and accept who you are. So it's something where, you know, you can do tests. There's something called the big five, which one of the big five is introversion, extroversion, or there's Myers-Briggs, which is used enormously as a test, but not as good as the big five in some ways. And you can do these tests to figure out which you are and how far along an introvert or extrovert you are. Also, you can ask friends and so on. And some people go, you're totally an extrovert. Like, just calm down, George. Or they might go, you're an introvert, Charles, or whatever it is. But it's something where you do these tests and ask people and you get a sense of who you are. And then you try to lean into your strengths and not get too hung up about your occasional weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you a question um, involved with what you said earlier. Like, do you think that something like being introverted or extroverted is something that you can change? Because it's like you said, it's hardwired technically, but do you think that someone might um, feel sort of um, not like an identity crisis, but, you know, they're surrounded by people that people, example, someone's introverted and they're surrounded by people that are really extroverted. Do you think that that can be changed to fit in and to actually be more involved in your community and the people around you in college, your family? Because I feel like when you're introverted, because personally me, I'm, I'm an introverted person. I can, I know that for a fact. Sometimes I feel like it's hard to um, speak with a lot of people for a long, long periods of time, um, as opposed to someone that naturally has that ink and they can just always um, spontaneously start a conversation. So do you think that it's something that's changeable and it's something that um, it's, it, it's, it's hardwired, but it's not too like incremented in you and it's something that you can adapt to? You can change a bit over time. Now, it's interesting because all the literature is about uh, people your age, because Professors in psychology have an endless supply of undergrads they can test as long as it's not, you know, electric shock. Mm -hmm. And but I was interested in senior executives, so your parents effectively age, another generation. And the CEOs I talked to are the C-suite executives for many years have proven to be leaders. Time after time, that's how you get promoted to be the CEO. So Charles Amon at the Case Depot here uh, is a leader. Uh, Conrad Sauvé, who runs the uh, Red Cross for Canada, 1,000 employees, he's a leader, and he's been a leader for years. So you kind of learn those behaviors, and it's a biased sample. But what I'm arguing is, look, some senior executives um, are introverts. Uh, Conrad is an extrovert. That's the nature of the beast. Other people are more introverted, but what I'm saying is the title of my book is We're All Ambiverts Now. So an ambivert is someone who acts like an introvert at times and an extrovert at other times. Now, when I first heard about it, I asked, um, you know, I would interview executives and every single one of the first 20 said, I'm an ambivert. Where it's just untrue, like probably 40% of executives are introverts, 40% are extroverts, and about 20% are genuine ambiverts. But what I'm saying is that if you want to be a CEO, you've got to act like an introvert at times and an extrovert at other times to be effective. And that's what an ambivert does. So as an extrovert, so David Benson runs Aldo, big shoe company headquartered here in Montreal around the world. We saw them when we were in the Cote d'Ivoire. And David is 6'8", 250 pounds. He's not overweight. He's just giant. Mm -hmm. He's the son of Aldo, and he's the CEO. So if he goes to a room as an extrovert and starts you know, pouring out his ideas, it stops all conversation. 
So if he wants to develop a new strategy with senior team, he goes in there and he acts like an introvert and is quiet and says, uh, so Charles, what do you think? And he comes in with his thoughts in his mind about the strategy, but he listens to Charles, he listens to no, he listens to you, Georges. And by the end, of it, the end of the meeting, he's listened to all you guys, happy thought I'm CEO, I get to decide the strategy, but what is in his mind has evolved because of your input. So he acted like an introvert to listen and learn, and that's good for him to do that as an extrovert. Now, another guy was uh, the CEO of CM, 24,000 people, big train company here in Montreal, and um, Claude Mangeau is his name, and he, he said he's a huge introvert, and he had a uh, extrovert coach when they were going to make him CEO, and they're thinking of making him uh, C, went from CEO to CEO, chief executive, chief operating officer, and one of the examples he got, he'd get in the elevator in the morning, look at his feet, and save CN some money in the five or six stories, but they said, no, what you got to do is go get in the elevator and go, good morning, Charles. So I recognize you, I say your name, and I say something like, boy, it's a nice day out there, or it's raining or whatever, you know, you're not going to argue with it. And then go, Charles, great presentation of the board last week, you really killed it, appreciate your hard work, get off the elevator. Because that's good CEO behavior, because if a CEO gets on the elevator, ignores you, looks at his feet and is worried, you go, man, he hates me, the company's in trouble, I'll send my resume to CP, the competitor. So as a, as a good CEO, you've got to be able to speak to people and it may be one-on-one, -on -one, like you like George, but you know, I recognize people and I thank them for their contributions. So you've got to act like an extrovert at times and an introvert at other times to be effective, but Claude can act like an extrovert, but he really needs to recharge his battery. He doesn't want to do it too much. Where Conrad Sauvé, which is uh, very much an extrovert, can act like an introvert, but can only do it so much. Yeah. So you have different approaches, but both have got to act like the other on occasion, but not all the time. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like, yeah, you, you can act like both, but I feel like you're always going to lean towards one side and you yeah. can do, you can only do so much of the other side. So yeah, yeah. I completely agree with uh, that parallel. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So but it's interesting because, you know, not to rush your guys through life, but when you're a kid, when you have a kid that's in grade three, you lose your name. No longer Charles, you're, you know, Noah's dad. And if you get upset, the other parents go, grow up, Charles. You're bigger than your kid. You have, you have more degrees. You make more money. You would on every level other than cuteness. But when you're in grade three class, if you need to be the center of attention and your kid can't, you're a jerk. So it's something where you learn to, you know, if you have kids or if you have a spouse and you go to her work, you don't try to be the center of attention because you're a jerk. You let her be the center of attention because it's called good spouse behavior. Mm -hmm. So there's certain things you act a certain way because it's just the right thing to do. But it's your birthday and we all gather around singing happy birthday. You can't run out of the room. Mm -hmm. If you're an introvert, you got to accept it and smile and, you know, maybe you leave after a few minutes. But you're playing a part in life that requires you to act a bit like the other, but recharge with introvert or extra breaks when you can yeah, I feel like when you 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 know you go through experience in life, you you can understand the social clues, the social cues, sorry, and you know how to um, how to act in certain situations. So yeah, I guess it, it really depends on the context. But at the end of the day, like I feel like it's always going to be more natural for one person to lean towards one side, and it's it, it it's hard to be exemplary introverted. It's hard to be extroverted for so long. So I feel like yeah, just on occasion. Mm 
-hmm. but not all the time. Of course. Otherwise, you'll just tip over. Mm -hmm. You won't be yourself. You'll act like someone. Not at all. And you won't be as effective as if you're an introvert, you should act like an introvert and use the strengths of an introvert. Yeah. And on occasion, act like an extrovert. So it's a matter of, you know, I'm an extrovert. I enjoy it. I use those strengths. But just sometimes, because I'm older, because of my responsibilities, I need to be, have some flexibility. But you'll learn that flexibility, George, over time. Mm -hmm. Completely. So you've helped probably a lot of people in university and stuff. And tell me if I'm wrong, there's probably a lot of people um, that you teach and stuff that actually don't still know 100% what they want to do in life. And, you know, what they want to do, in, you know, their path or their career and stuff. And how can you, you know, just like help them? What is an advice for people that don't know exactly what to do or just, you know, um, you know, just they don't know what to do as a job or in life? You know, is there something that you can give someone to just say you can do this and it's going to help you over time? I think it's something that's why you do education is to try out different subjects to see what works for you, what doesn't work for you trying out different experiences to get a sense of what do you what would you want to do and i ask ceos what's your passion when did you find it at what age and has it evolved and almost all of them say i found it in my 20s or 30s but it's evolved so it's something where part of what you want to do in your 20s is kind of figure out what you love doing what the world cares about and we're willing to pay you some money and you're actually fairly good at it. So, but part of it is like, uh, that's part of the twenties, maybe even to the thirties, you're finding that out and getting a degree or two is part of how to do that. Trying various things out is kind of what a lot of people do. And if you find it, you know, and I know some people want to be a doctor when they're 15 and they, you know, go and do that. But most of us, you know, it's a matter of trying things and exploring and finding out what you enjoy and what you're good at and what the world cares about. So those three things coming together. But uh, a lot of people will do a bachelor's, go work for a while, and then do an MBA five or six years later. And it's partly reinventing yourself. So even in your 20s, you're still exploring and into your 30s sometimes. But you might change your mind in your 50s and do something different. So it's not you know, one thing for life for most people. Now, on the other hand, if you're a dentist, you're doing really good stuff. You make a lot of money and it's hard to go make similar money doing something. But, you know, occasionally around a dentist, they go, I hate it. And so they, like one guy, you know, became a tennis pro, but he was a single guy and, you know, he was a pretty good tennis pro, so he could afford to do that. But um, most things you, you have some flexibility and just go out there, try different things, see what you like. And what about you? Did it change over time? Was it the same thing when you were 20 and now, or, you know, what happened? It was something where I worked for 11 years with IBM and Atashi in sales and marketing management, and there was all action, not enough thought. So I did a PhD, which is all thought, no action. And so, but after a little while, I started doing exec ed because I was a little bit older, and so I could do that. I found I enjoyed teaching, there was action, then I could go back in the thought. So it's a nice balance, to my mind, of thought and action. So I write books and thinking, but then I'm teaching, doing stuff, traveling with students, where it's a happy combination. And my friends who uh, stayed at IBM are richer, but, and, but they're tired, they're more after retirement, because they're worn out by it all. But I still enjoy what I'm doing and it's great fun and no plans to retire. My, my colleague I mentioned, Henry Mintzberg is 83 and he's not even thinking, I mean, he's slowed down a bit, but he's not retired because he has too much fun.
So I think that's something where I evolved over time and I went from writing academic age journal articles to writing books and I have a national radio show and I do a column for the globe. So it's evolved a third time in the last 10 years. So there wasn't one answer, but I think if you're like, you know, a heart surgeon, it's really useful. And, you know, you've spent so much time becoming a heart surgeon that at, at that point you kind of go, I'm not going to change it. But a lot of in business, you can evolve a lot as you go from being a great salesperson. So one of the books I'm working on with a guy at Duke is in sports. They say that when you go from the college ball to the NBA, the game speeds up or from the AHL, the NHL. And a question is, how do you slow the game down? So we're saying is that in the business world, you go from being star salesperson to sales manager, it's a different game. And when you go from being a sales manager to the vice president of sales, you're playing a different game. And then to see CEO, it's a different game again. And when I talk to CEOs, you know, that been, have been chief operating officers, so number two, like the guy at Bell, I asked him, or the guy who's the new CEO at the National Bank. And I said, is it different being CEO? They go, Carl, absolutely. I said, but you were like, the C number two, you're following the CEO around, not quite like a puppy dog, but you should have known. They go, no, but it's different when you're there. So part of it is that as you go up the corporate ladder, the role changes, what you do, the game changes. And what we're writing a book is based on 50 interviews at each level is how do you slow the game down so you can be better at it. But it's a different world from being a star salesperson, the sales manager, different set of tasks, different agenda, different ways of measuring your success. The world changes. So I don't want to get you scared, but you're going to evolve and change throughout your lives. On the positive side, that means you have challenges, interesting new things to do, and you're less apt to get bored is the positive side of that thing. Yeah, of course. You know, like you said, it's just you just you're gonna evolve over time and me, George, and Noah, like we're really young and I feel like we're gonna experience everything. So uh yeah, and um yeah, it's just experience over time and you're gonna, you know, find your path over time with passion and stuff like this. And you can try stuff yeah. like you said. Mm -hmm. oh, so, for sure. Something uh, I found interesting about what you said is when you're in business, um, you evolve a lot because you're very flexible. Last podcast episode we had, we had Daniel Lamar. He's the former vice president uh, of the board of the Six Today and former CEO of the company. Yeah, yeah, no, I didn't come to class. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they love Daniel, great guy. Uh -huh. And he says, um, his, one of his philosophies is your purpose is going to change a lot, but as long as you have one, you're always going to work hard and you're always going to pursue something because when, you, when you're in business you, you you can tackle a lot of different industries but as long as you have a purpose you're always going to to have drive so that that's something i found like i like i'm gonna st i'm sticking to so yeah 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 that's very interesting mm -hmm. um so yeah we, we wanted to ask you uh, one last uh, question to wrap up this episode so you know throughout your career you've worked with many different people uh, you've had all these these experiences. Is, is there anyone in particular who's had a particularly like significant impact on your work, and what qualities did they possess that made them such you know an inspiring colleague? And what like you know that that, that one quality that stands out that you think is super important to build that relationship with someone and a colleague? Well, a guy named Henry Mintzberg is one of the most famous business profs in the world. He and Michael Porter at Harvard are probably the two most famous, and. Um, he came to my PhD in Toronto 30 some years ago, met him. Then I did my, I, my wife's in Quebec City, so I thought I might want to live in Montreal and teach in the Guild. So I went there and spent some time there um, and got to know him. 
So I went to Oxford, taught there, and our son Eric came home at age four and said, Dottie, I need a bath. And we said, it's time to leave. He's becoming British. And so uh, Taka Henry and he recruited me back. So I came to McGill to work with one of the great people of the world. And he's uh, very much a friend and a colleague. Um, he, uh, I interviewed him on stage about his newest book and his daughter's there who is in her 50s and his granddaughters. And so um, I taught his grandniece in my undergraduate class last year. So it was very cool to have a Minsburg there. And, you know, I've known him for years, but he's someone who's genuinely caring, um, shares his ideas, his thinking, and treats me as a colleague and an equal and a friend. And But he's in a different time zone than I am, like in terms of just citations yeah. and fame and everything else. But that sort of thing, I've been inspired by spending time with him, being mentored by him, learning from him, and watching how it's done in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. That has been a real privilege. So you think like when someone has transparency, you're really able to see what kind of person they are and what they, um, you know, you can learn from them when they're transparent and they're not like um, sort of hiding what they really think. They're really like open about their ideas. And I think it's probably if you're working together, like it's just natural part of the process of yeah. work that, you know, you see them in action, you watch them, you learn from them. You might say, so why'd you do that? And, you know, and they explain why and you might disagree, but you learn, oh, that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. So it's a matter of being mentored by working together and actually doing something rather than just, you know, sitting and having coffee once in a while. That's what made a big difference in my life. But I also have a second mentor, uh, Dick Pound, who uh, lives here in Montreal. That re- was a central person of the Y at the, sorry, at the Olympics for years, for like 60 years. And um, he was Chancellor McGill, got to know him, and I asked me to be a mentor. So I go over and have a scotch with him from time to time, which is another side benefit of having a mentor, that they have a, a good supply of scotch, in my case, and um, enjoy chatting with him. But it's more from time to time with Henry. It was in the trenches working with for a number of years, which was great fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, go ahead, Charles. Yeah, so uh, we're going to wrap up this episode. Um, really, really a big thank you for uh, being here today, Mr. Moore. Uh, Georgia and I really had a great time talking to you. Uh, we talked about many subjects that are really, really important uh, for the youth. And again, really appreciate it that you were here in this uh, call with us. Mm-hmm. Thank great you so much. Questions, guys. Really appreciate uh, your insights and your questions. Uh, it's a real pleasure. I've done a lot of podcasts. And then with professors of Warden and Dartmouth and all, uh, you guys had great questions. Well done. Yeah, because we, we, we really um, focus on trying to like inspire the youth and uh, bring about lessons. So... I feel like you, you've done an amazing job doing that. So, uh, yeah, thank you again for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Talk to you again, some guy. So, thank so, you, everyone. Talk for... again, sometimes. Keep well. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Goodbye, everyone.